This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and let's simplify the seemingly complex topic that is life insurance. No guests, just Joe and OG digging in with their take. Plus, another financial advisor in an alleged $100 million Ponzi scheme? Oh boy, we'll get down to the bottom of this and how it affects your money during our headline segment. And later, I'll share another round of my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who know it's September 1st, so they're first in line at Starbucks for pumpkin spice lattes. Well, at least one of them is. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. They are so good, but it still feels too early. It, it totally feels it's too because early. it's 97 degrees. It is. I, I don't know. It is fall somewhere, but it definitely isn't here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Turn the Calendar Day. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me, getting ready to light up the microphone. It's Mr. OG. Apple cider, donuts, the leaves are changing. Just all magically happens on September 1st. Just not here. Yeah. Not happening. I mean, here. here it's more like November twenty eighth. Everything just dies. Right that day, just everything falls off trees. Oh, the beautiful yeah. colors! Everything goes from green to brown. Brown, it's <laughs> great. I got to tell you, if I could spend the autumn in Michigan and spend the spring in Texas, the, you got it. You got it. The Texas spring is fantastic. There's no spring in Michigan. In Michigan, remember, it's like uh, goes from freezing cold to humid summer. Yes, and road construction signs. But it's fall now. It is. Happy September 1st. Happy And you know how we're going to celebrate, OG, the way that all normal people should? We're going to talk about your life insurance. Heck so yeah. have a seat, people. It's life insurance month. I forgot about that. Yes, and we are going to cozy up to the microphone and teach you how life insurance basics work. I know that when I'm in online forums, I see tons of people who are peddling rules of thumb or... Things that are kind of true. 20X. You should get 20X. Yeah. Or stuff that they believe is true, but they're not really sure. You know, I heard that this one type is better than all the others. Or I, I heard that this that. is the way you do it. Yeah. We're going to actually go through the basics because you know what? A lot of those truisms really are true for the majority of people, but we're going to make sure that the cool kids know why they're true and when they're true, because I don't think there's ever a time when it's true for everybody. First, we've got a big headline, but even before that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. 
Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Let's do it. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Barron's, uh, written by Kenneth Corbin, this piece. We haven't had this type of disturbing news in a long time. The SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, secures a restraining order against a registered investment advisor in an alleged $110 million Ponzi scheme. Nice. You know why it was $110 million? Because he spent the first two. Two hundred and forty million. <laughs> you were going nearly the same way because they couldn't find enough suckers to make it two hundred and forty million. That's why the Securities and Exchange Commission, Kenneth writes, has secured a court order to shut down an alleged decade-long Ponzi scheme involving a financial advisor and his independent advisory firm that the agency alleges swindled more than four hundred investors out of millions of dollars. The SEC claims that John Woods and his team of advisors at Southport Capital, uh, this is in Georgia raised more than $110 million over 10 years by enticing clients, including many elderly retirees, to invest in the Horizon Private Equity Fund. The agency says that Woods controls the fund and owns and controls Southport. So let's... Uh, A little self-dealing? Yeah, break down what's happening here. So this guy is a registered investment advisor, can recommend things all over the place, recommends this one private capital thingy. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. But uh, he he operates that too. Now, as I as I went through this article, I do have to say that there are some things that are unclear. Wood still OG says that he doesn't control Horizon Private Equity Fund. However, in court, the SEC has already been able to freeze assets and uh, begin shutting things down. So it appears that in a court of law, Woods is losing that. But I don't know the truth here. I just know it's being reported in in Barron's. And that is that allegedly he was moving bunches and bunches of money to this place. Woods and his cohort, this is uh, the SEC. The Securities Exchange Commission says Woods and his cohorts at Southport generally told investors that Horizon would earn a return by investing their money in, for example, government bonds, stocks or small real estate projects investors were not told that their money would or could be used to pay returns to earlier investors the sec writes in its request for an emergency injunction filed in federal court Uh, but that's exactly what the defendants did they were only able to pay the guaranteed returns to existing investors by raising and using new investor money and that is where they got in trouble horizon has not earned any significant profits from legitimate investments instead a very large percentage a purported quote returns to earlier investors were simply paid out of new investor money. Womp, womp, womp. Let's start off with this because, you know, if you're sitting at home and you're wondering, how do I make sure that I, I stay out of this, that this doesn't happen with my money? I think the first issue, maybe the first flag OG, would be when the advisor says guaranteed return. Yeah. There has to be a relationship between the amount of money that you're putting at risk and the potential outcome that you may have. We were just talking about this on Monday with Bitcoin about how if you're going to put money into Bitcoin or crypto or something like that, you have to understand that if the potential return might be 100x, the potential loss also has to to be commensurate to that. When you start looking at investment returns, if there's an investment return that's guaranteed then the upside can't exist, right? Or as much upside, the variability has to be tighter. If I said, hey, I can guarantee you 0.4% a year, you think I'm a bank, right? Like that's the bank numbers right now. Or I can get you 1.6 or 1.3 over 10 years. That's a 10-year treasury, right? So if all of a sudden I can say, well, I can guarantee you and we didn't hear what the guarantee number was. No. It probably wasn't small. Nobody signs up for a guaranteed 0.4 on purpose. Are you? That's not a that's not a sales tactic that one would use. And I'm locked to, in. Sign me up. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, you know, just use Bernie Madoff or something. If you're going to say, hey, I guarantee you 10%, something ought to rattle a little bit because it's like, well, that doesn't exist in real life. We can get 10%. We can average 10%. But what do you have to trade away to average 10% over a long period of time? You have to be okay with 23 days in March of last year, the stock market going down 35%. That's the trade. And if you don't have that trade, there's no way you can get that upside. And it has to be intuitive that if that thing really existed, then every single person would have their money in it. Or the real returns of actually taking risk would be exponentially higher. Yeah. Because there was a time when uh, money markets were at 7%. I remember this in the late 90s. You were remembering this in the late 90s. What was the stock market return in the late 90s? Huge. Through the roof. Had to be. Had to be. Because no capital would go into something other than money market funds if the return potential didn't exist as a multiple of that guarantee. If I can go get 7% at the bank in a CD, why in the hell would I go try to get 8.5% of my stock account? I just wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be a good trade. If you can get 7% guaranteed in your money market account, you might need to get 15. You might need to get 20. And so, when you hear those things, and there's nothing wrong with private equity deals, there's nothing wrong with venture capital investments or, or hedge funds or any of that sort of stuff. But when the sales pitch sounds like you're going to get all of this upside with none of this downside, there's got to be something else involved there. Some other sort of thing that you're not being made aware of. Well, and this is where the second half of this, I think, comes in, which the second red flag for me was the fact that this fund was called the Horizon Private Equity Fund. And those two words, private equity, I think especially if... if uh, Sounds sexy. What do you do? I run a private equity fund. If you need the money anytime soon, you know, we're about to talk about some insurance products that also get knocked on a lot. Private equity gets knocked on a lot. And a lot of that is for a good reason, but that does not mean that the segment is necessarily evil, but it does raise some flags because it makes it easier in private equity for companies to do bad things. And I want to go to investor.gov. What are private equity funds? It's directly from the Securities and Exchange Commission. They write, when you invest in a private equity fund, you're investing in a fund managed by a private equity firm, the advisor. By the way, in this case, the advisor, according to the SEC, is the same person as the salesperson. So there you go. Uh, which, which happens is, in real life also, legitimately. But is masquerading as an RIA, as an independent RIA. Also completely legitimate, as long as you were to disclose that. Disclose that, right. And instead, uh, and later on in this Barron's piece. But you uh, can see if you did that, how hard that would be. If you were the salesperson of the thing that you're trying to sell, it's a more difficult sale. So if I don't tell you that I control that, then it'll be easy because I'm giving you independent advice. If I change that to say, this is 100% me, right? I am your financial planner, and I think you should invest all of your money in this thing that I do, both of which pay me if we're successful, and I don't think you should do anything else other than that. Well, I've just kind of washed away the independence, haven't I? There <laughs> I'm just goes. a commission sales guy, so that doesn't work as good in the grand scheme of things. But there are private equity firms that have salespeople who go out to try to sell their product. Sure. Right? I mean, that's no different than Vanguard having ads on TV saying, buy our crap, right? Or BlackRock. Or a Franklin Templeton person who goes from financial advisor office to financial advisor office talking about how good their funds are. This is how great our stuff is. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's in the disclosure and in the sales material that is like, we're going to guarantee you this. Okay. The SEC continues, similar to a mutual fund or a hedge fund, a private equity fund is a pooled investment vehicle where the advisor pools together the money invested in the fund by all the investors and uses that money to make investments on behalf of the fund. Okay, so all the money gets pooled together of all the different people and they they take it out and invest it. Unlike mutual funds or hedge funds, however, private equity firms often focus on long-term investment opportunities in assets that take time to sell with an investment time horizon typically 
of 10 or more years. A typical investment strategy undertaken by a private equity fund is to take a controlling interest in an operating company or business, the portfolio company, and engage actively in the management and direction of the company or business in order to increase its value. In other words, they go in, they fire the managers, they bring in their own managers, they pretty much take it over, OG, and uh, run the company. Well, let's remember earlier this year, uh, all the news about the those SPACs, the special acquisition companies. Yeah. That's a private equity firm. There you go. Right? And what were they doing? They weren't, you know, now this is a pretty quick flip, but they would acquire companies and flip them as an IPO. But I I think the other thing that you want to think about too, is you consider more esoteric type of investments like private equity or, or something like that is to consider who are the people that you know of either personally or anecdotally who are typically investing in this. Does Bill on the line at GM invest in private equity? Probably not. Unless it's one of these Ponzi scheme ones. Right. Right. Yeah. When you hear the word private equity, who comes to mind? Like, do you have a person that pops in your I mind? I think ultra wealthy. Mitt Romney. Right. That's who I think of because he ran a private equity firm, right? Gazillionaire. What can he afford to have happen? He can lose a bunch of that. He can lose all of his money in that stuff and still be fine. When you look at these PE firms, a lot of them are created by and funded initially by people who have excess capital and they're trying to throw stuff against the wall. Blue Origin. Is that the name of it? Or Blue Horizon? I can't remember. Blue Origin, I think. The space shuttle thing for for what's his Bezos. name? Bezos. Do you think that Jeff's got enough money if that thing just kind of never made made a profit? In fact, I'm not aware that it has made a profit. You know what I mean? Of course he does. He can He can throw stuff against the wall. Can you do that can you have a hundred return or zero? Can you afford that in your retirement plan? And I would say that for the vast majority of people, the answer is no. This is just like that concept that we've talked about in the past of you have to do all the little things right before you get to do the cool things. And sometimes the cool things are, I get to buy an apartment building. But what happens if you buy an apartment building without a cash reserve and without a management company in place and without the experience to do that or extra money? Well, then the roof collapses and you need a $100,000 roof repair. If you don't have the money, you can't do it. You can even take that to a smaller level because even for a lot of people listening, that example might be over their head. How about this? People think about buying a house, right? Buying their first house. But what if you can't afford the upkeep on the house? I remember my first house, the upkeep numbers were way bigger than I thought that it was going to be. Let's drop it down even further. I'm going to put money into my 401k without my cash reserve. And I don't have enough cash reserve and now something happens to my automobile or whatever, how am I going to fix that? I got to take money out of my 401k, which is not tax efficient, which is sometimes dependent on market returns. And sometimes I get a bad outcome there. So if you're thinking of private equity as an investment asset class, that means that you've checked every other box along the way, every other box. Which means, and I love where you're headed there, guarantee number one flag. Number two, somebody says private equity doesn't necessarily make it bad, to your point. I mean, this was a bad outcome, but for a lot of these people, they should have been asking, have I checked all these different boxes? We're in the hierarchy of this, should I be? And if I'm then putting the tip of the pyramid on, why would I want to guarantee? Like, if this is truly like, I'm building a rocket ship that I can take people to space in, I want that thing to be like a freaking billion percent return. I don't want to guarantee on my private equity stuff because I've done all the guaranteed stuff and then all the volatile stuff and all the stock stuff. And I still have extra money. And you can see based on this investor.org SEC website description that what a non sequitur guarantee is based on the paragraph that I just read about what this does. Yeah. Hey, we're going to go in and we're going to take over some companies and uh, listen, uh, it's going to be guaranteed. Guy puts a fancy guarantee in a box because he wants you to feel all warm and toasty inside. Yeah, makes a man feel good. Of course it does. Why shouldn't it? You figure you put that little box under your pillow at night, the guarantee fairy might come by and leave a quarter. Am I right, Dad? <laughs> What's your point? The point is, how do you know the fairy isn't a crazy glue sniffer? Building model airplanes, says the little fairy. Well, we're not buying it. He sneaks into your house once, that's all it takes. Next thing you know, there's money missing off the dresser and your daughter's knocked up. I've seen it a hundred times. But why do they put a guarantee on the box then? Because they know all they sold you was a guaranteed piece of shit. 
That's all it is, isn't it? Hey, if you want me to take a dump in a box and mark it guaranteed, I will. I got spare time. But for now, for your customer's sake, for your daughter's sake, you might want to think about buying a quality product from me. Okay, I'll buy it. Bam! I'll buy it. It sounds like, allegedly here, these guys took a dump in a box and marked it guaranteed, OG. They had spare time. <laughs> it's, it's, I think a great place to end it and probably the biggest takeaway. Don't buy a guaranteed dump in a box. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And did you know that today is National Gyro Day? You know, few things are more tasty than a lamb hero with that, you know, that the, the stuff with that special sauce on it. Oh, man, do I love me some of that gyro. Anyway, let's go from one of the best sandwiches to one of the worst subway sandwiches that is they say eat fresh i say yeah not so much subway anyway something that's always confounded me is that the ownership group for subway is called doctors associates inc which doesn't sound like a sandwich company name to me so the question is how did doctors associates inc come by its name i'll look up the answer for both of us and you just sit there looking good And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested that can increase the potential for compound returns in other words your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread you'll never picture your money in the same way again betterment the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle visit betterment.com to get started investing involves risk performance is not guaranteed the thrill of the financial markets clicking the order on another day trading win introducing the perfect coffee for that perfect moment when you've just nailed an upside down candlestick all-in move or that glorious time as the sun's coming up and you've pushed through the nighttime hours trading Tokyo Hong Kong Frankfurt and London exchanges and you just barely eked out that option harness that saved your ass before your 2450 call expired. What's the perfect coffee for that moment? Pour yourself some. I got lucky again, brew. Imagine delicious trades and a fantastic taste. Sure, you might not sleep because that caffeine combines beautifully with your betting the farm lifestyle, but heck, it's nearly worth it because you found the perfect fix to keep you motoring staring at that monitor, waiting to squeeze out another quarter point on the VIX. Every time I push the button on another Wisdom Tree Coffee 3x daily leveraged out of the money option, I sip on my I got lucky again brew and think I got lucky again. I haven't gotten lucky in weeks, but I'm still up all night trading. Are you coming to bed? Be there in a couple hours, honey. That doesn't stop me from drinking a cup or three of... I got lucky again coffee. Sure, coffee won't make you millions, but you'll feel like a million while you drink I got lucky again, brew. Available now. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And, you know, here on National Euro Day, I realized that it might be the combo of that amazing sauce with the spiced lamb that makes it so delicious. Then again, whenever I eat a gyro, I appreciate the veggies on it, too. Huh. What makes it so special? Well, here's a brand that's worked hard not to be special lately, Subway, and I discovered during the break the answer to today's trivia question, which was this. The official name for Subway is Doctors Associates, Inc. How did that name come to be? Well, the original restaurant created by 17-year-old Fred DeLuca and financed by Peter Buck was called Pete's Super Submarines. 
the business name was shortened to Subway in 1968. And as Fred built out a franchise plan, he created a parent company called Doctors Associates, Inc. This odd name was created because young Fred hoped to make enough one day and use the cash he made to go to medical school. It paid off because Subway is everywhere now. All right, buckle in, because now it's time to help you make better life insurance decisions. See ya! Hey, this is John in Seattle, and when I'm not telling terrible dad jokes to anyone who will listen, I'm Stacking Benjamins. Normally at this juncture, we are headed into talking to somebody interesting about maybe a facet of financial planning or thinking about your money. But today, OG and I are strapping in to help you do better with your life insurance. And the first thing I wanted to talk about here to dive in, set the stage is our goal today is to help you get rid of thinking and truisms like you should have X amount, like you were talking about before OG or during the open, or that X type of insurance is bad. I want to wipe those all away. And I want to start with nothing is bad, period. And, and I'm not saying individual products. I'm saying product types aren't bad, but there are uses for those products and once you understand how the different products are most effectively used, which means you got to understand the basics, then you'll see that, yeah, most of the stuff you're thinking about these products are correct, that there are horrible uses for them, but there's also fantastic uses. And I think that people might be, uh, might have a much better understanding of where they are. So I think, OG, that where we need to start with is this, what is insurance in general? Basically, what all insurance really is, is you sharing the risk with a, with a pool of people, right? Yeah. I mean, um, insurance is you putting up some money today, everybody else putting money up today and deciding that if something bad happens to one of the people in the group, that the collective amount of money saved will make that other person hold to the limits of whatever you decided to protect. And what that does I think dispels this myth that life insurance is made to make life cheaper. Life insurance, in my opinion, is not made to make things cheaper. It's to get rid of this horrible result, which is a catastrophic event where I need a crap load of money today. So instead of needing a crap load right now, I then can pay an insurance company to facilitate this thing where I'm going to pay them a little bit at a time. And as a guarantee that because I'm paying you over time, this catastrophic event is going to be taken off the table largely, as long as I understand what the rules are, right? Mm -hmm. I can take away this need for that, but that doesn't make the cost of the event OG cheaper. What it does is it takes that risk of needing all the money at once. And instead I say, okay, I'm going to pay for this catastrophic event that probability says will probably happen. I'm going to pay for it a little bit at a time. And then I'm going to pay an insurance company some money to facilitate this process and take away that. I don't think insurance and even life insurance is meant to make things cheaper. I've never heard that as an example, like it trying to make things cheaper or less expensive. But I do like what you're saying there about you're, you're trying to quantify what this big, this big need would look like. And since we're talking about life insurance today, we'll talk about what that would look like if something bad happens and you're not around tomorrow, then yeah, you do need a whole bunch of money. You may not need all of it in one fell swoop, but you do need to understand what that would look like immediately from a planning perspective. Yeah. And if you die young and you haven't built up assets yet, the probability is some other people are going to live for a long time. So you're putting money in and by the you're way, hopefully creating an estate that didn't exist. Yeah, hopefully you lose that battle, right? I mean, hopefully you live for a long time and you and you overpay. The price of the insurance, and this is the this is the big aha. When it comes to any type of insurance, the price of the insurance is based on the probability that something's going to occur. And the magnitude of what would happen if it did occur. Yeah, what's an example? Like contrast two of those things if you don't mind. Well, uh, pretty simply, the cost of your house insurance versus the cost of your car insurance. Those numbers are usually quite disparate in one way, shape, or form. Either your house is worth 
10 or 20 times X your cars, right? So you've got a $400,000 house and a $40,000 minivan. Well, what's the insurance on your house? 2,500 bucks a year? Yeah, much less than... What's the insurance on your minivan? Right. 2,500 bucks a year? So why, why, why is it that the car insurance costs the same as the house insurance? Well, it's because the likelihood of you burning your house down and needing a $400,000 replacement is very small compared to you smashing your minivan into a semi-truck on the highway and needing a new minivan. So it's probability of that event happening and the magnitude of the event. In this case, it's defined, you know, and the same thing is true with life insurance. Why is it that a 25 year old can get a million dollars of life insurance for eight bucks a month but a 40-year-old can get a million dollars of life insurance for 80 bucks a month. It's the same million, right? But what's the probability? The probability has changed. The likelihood of that occurrence has changed. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I want to dive into what you just said, because I think this is a super important concept. And man, if you grasp this about how life insurance prices work, you're 90% of the way to dumping a bunch of the half-truths. So the way that life insurance is priced is the same way, magnitude and probability. You talked about young versus old, but let's look at the other side of this OG, which is the two basic, very basic, and we'll dive more into these in a, in a little bit, but the two basic types of insurance are term insurance and permanent insurance. People have heard terms like whole life insurance or universal life insurance. Those are permanent types of insurance. A term insurance lasts for a term of time and then it goes away. So number one, when you look at these two types of insurance, permanent insurance is designed to last until you die. And term insurance is only going to last for a set term that will end at some prearranged point. But it's not most of the time. It's not when you're expected to die. The, the insurance will go away before that. Yeah. And because of that, insurance companies can charge a lot less per thousand for term insurance than they can for permanent. Because, hey, if I go buy a permanent policy, they're like, I go to the store, I go to the insurance store, and I ask the clerk, I say, hey, I want an insurance that's going to be around when I die. Oh, that's that's the expensive stuff over here. Well, what about one that just lasts till I'm 60? Well, that's the cheaper stuff over there. And the reason it's cheaper is because a lot of us are going to die after 60. You know what's even more more interesting? I think this will really blow, it might not blow your mind because you've maybe heard this before. All insurance, all insurance is term insurance. And all term insurance is one-year term. Yeah. So when you get a 20-year term policy and you're a standard 40-year-old healthy American male and you want a million bucks, they have, they, the insurance company, has a chart of how much it costs to insure a 40-year-old, a 41-year-old, a 42-year-old, a 43-year-old, a 44-year-old, etc. Add all that up, divide it by 20 years, and go, your premium's a thousand bucks a year. And when you have a permanent policy, they do the exact same thing. Only they make it go to age 120 or 100 or 120, depending on the company. What's the probability, Joe, of a 104-year-old healthy American male dying today? Dying this year. Right. Pretty flipping high. So if you wanted a million dollars of life insurance and you're 104, how much do you think your premium will be? Some number really close to a million, right? Less some interest. Now, there's another phase to this. So you take all that, you divide it out, but then there's the time value concept of money. You know, just like your money compounds in the market, insurance money compounds also. I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss a key point here though, OG, that you bring up, which is that when I hear from people, don't buy permanent life insurance because those people are ripping you off. You see the price difference? It's too expensive. It is expensive because you're going to use it. Also... Here's another thing that will knock your socks off. Companies don't arbitrarily come up with these numbers. The state that they're doing business in, there's a person in the government who is in charge of signing off on that. Now, do they get to have a little bit more, a little fudge factor if they're this company or that company? Yeah, sure. Do they get to say, 
we really don't think that if you have high cholesterol, we should give you insurance. So we'll add a little, sure. They get to have their own little risk matrix for sure. But it's not a rant. It's not some, it's not just the insurance guys going, well, that guy looks rich. Let me see if I can't squeeze him for an extra hundred a month. <laughs> like it's contractual. <laughs> but like you said, on the permanent side, the reason it costs more is because you'll use it. And there's another function of per- another point of permanent insurance, which we might get to, which adds to the premium. But the cost of insurance for term and the cost of insurance for whole life, universal life in the year in which you're in will be markedly the same. It'll be the same. And therein lies how you make decisions. So the first thing you need to think to yourself before people start thinking that, man, it sounds like these guys are trying to sell me on whole life. No, that's not what we're trying to, we're trying to explain how this works and you back up and you go, okay, am I going to need this insurance after I'm 60 or 65? No, I probably won't. So guess what? I can avoid, in most cases, I can avoid those really expensive years by buying term insurance. But now there also is, and we talked earlier in the show with the private equity thing, that there is no guarantee without risk. What we're doing when we buy term insurance, which I think is what the majority of people by far that listen to the show should do, what you're doing though is you are making a bet. And that bet is that by the time you reach the age at the end of that term, you will have enough money collectively that you don't need to pool the risk anymore. Like, hey, let it happen. I've got enough cash to cover it. But remember, when you buy a guarantee, you get rid of the upside. Permanent insurance guarantees it's going to last forever. And guess what they do in exchange for that? You get rid of the upside, which is which is those later years, the burden of not having to have that insurance. You're gonna you're gonna have the price. Now, to make that price palatable, let's go into permanent insurance for a second. Make that price palatable. They take that term insurance OG that you're talking about and they go, there's no way an 85 year old person wants to get the bill for a bajillion dollars. So they level it off. And they actually even do this with term insurance. You'll hear if you buy a 20 year or a 30 year, they'll level it out, use the time value money approach that you talked about. And they go, hey, instead of this stepping up every year and making it more expensive, we're just going to charge you X amount every year. And maybe the policy will be, quote, paid up, right? And really paid up, I think what that really means is you've prepaid. You've prepaid enough into it to cover those later years. Right. And on the permanent side, the other reason that I think people get kind of hung up on the cost difference between term and a permanent is that a permanent policy also has an additional component to it. So you have the cost of insurance component, which is ostensibly the same between term and permanent. But then you also have to kind of, like you said, to make that 85-year-old more palatable, they also add a cash value percentage or a cash value component to the policy, which is billed as, you know, if you're the sales guy, it's like, look at all this money you have, right? Like this is a savings account. It's an investment account for the future, da, 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 da. But what is it really doing? Yeah. Behind the scenes, what really happens is like you said, you're prepaying it. You're saying, I'm going to accumulate some capital in this bucket. Sometimes it goes up and down with the market. Sometimes it's a fixed rate, you know, whatever. But that money that I accumulate over from 40 to 70, let's say, I've got a million dollar policy and now I've contributed enough money that there's a $300,000 cash value. The sales guy would say, look, you've got 300 grand you can use for retirement, which would be true. But what did you really do? You're now on only buying $700,000 worth of insurance. Right. So they can kind of lessen that premium down as the years go on because you're going, well, this year, year one, I bought a million dollars of life insurance. Year two, I'm older but I only bought $9,990,000 worth of insurance. This is another thing that I see in online forums all the time. The agent wants you to put how much money per month into that permanent life insurance policy? That premium For, is too high is, the, yes. is, is what you see. But the premium is cost of insurance and the cash value number that they have statistically figured out will keep the thing floating through your hundredth birthday if you pay this number. Right. Because when you're 99, like we were talking about before, use 104 year example. But when you're 99, if you're trying to buy a million dollars life insurance at 99, the freaking premiums nine million or you know nine hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> it's a ton like because there's a really, really, really high chance that you're not going to make it to a hundred if you're 90. You know what I mean? Like statistically. Yeah. 
So to make that burden easier, they assume that by the time you get to 99, you will have accumulated $900,000 of cash in that policy. You're only buying $100,000 of life insurance on the 99-year-old at that point. You still get the million-dollar check when you die, but really 900K of it is actually your money. Is, is your cash, which, which goes back to the beginning of this discussion. You've pulled the risk over time. You put yeah. that money in over time, you pulled the risk over time, and now you're, you're cashing in. So to recap this, and I know this might make people's head hurt a little bit, but I really think we need to recap, oh, gee, what you just said. At its heart, insurance is sold per thousand. So going back to that life insurance store analogy, you go into a store to buy a policy, and they have these $1,000 units of insurance sitting all over. So you fill up your cart with 100 of them. Let's use 100,000. You're using a million. We'll lower that, make it 100,000. You do 100 of them. The clerk asks you how old you are, right? Because we talked about that, because the price per $1,000 unit is based on your age. That's going to be really cheap when you're young, super expensive when you're older. Then they ask what the term is. Well, I want it forever. Okay. They will take actuarial tables and figure out how much it's going to cost. That's going to be a huge number if it's permanent. So the way to mitigate that, the way to make that insurance cheaper is to subsidize it with cash while it's cheap to subsidize the price later on when it's expensive. And so you pay it basically, you put, you shove money into this cash account. So what makes OG and I giggle which is, is the exact opposite thing that we see people say online. If I see of somebody with a permanent insurance policy and they're shoving tons of money into it, they're using it correctly, most probably. If they're right. minimum funding it, they're wasting their money and some insurance agent got a commission. And we'll talk about all this stuff too. I think we need to address that. Insurance agent got a commission, products used wrong, everybody loses, right? Everybody, the family loses, waste of money, should have bought just a simple term insurance policy instead of this, this thing that ended up being craptastic. To make that cash work even like it. <laughs> to make that cash work even more effectively, there's really different things different investors are looking for. Some people say they're like, well, man, I want to make sure that money's guaranteed. Back to the discussion we had earlier today. If you want that cash that you're shoveling into the policy while you're young to make it less expensive later, if you want that guaranteed, the insurance company has to guarantee a low rate because they don't know what the hell things are going to be like 40 years from now. So they're going to give you these low savings account rates, which means the policy is going to be even more expensive. And this is why whole life insurance companies, which are bundled, they don't even show you the inside, the guts of it to show you the cash versus the life insurance amount that's outstanding. They just show you, hey, when you die, you get X amount. It's all guaranteed. It's all going to happen. Those are the most expensive policies, not because they're ripping you off, but because they're guaranteed. On the other side, a universal policy will float those at current interest rates. They'll say, hey, OG, here's what we're going to do with your policy. We're just going to float it the cash with the way interest rates are. Here's the lowest it can go contractually. Here's maybe the highest it can go contractually. So between these bars, you're going to get whatever interest rates are. Great. Okay. Those will perform a little better and will be a little cheaper usually than whole life insurance policies will be. Because you're taking some of the risk associated with the volatility of that investment that's inside there. So you could end up with more money than you projected, in which case your future premiums will be less because you got lucky. Right, right. And then the third type has things that look like mutual funds on the inside. I mean, for our discussion today, we can call them mutual funds on the inside. They're really separate accounts. But You're taking a lot more risk now. You can move it around like in your 401k. You can move the investments around. Hey, if you do really well, this insurance could be incredibly cheap because now you have a lot of money in the cash, which means that let's say that you die and uh, you've accumulated $50,000 of cash in this $100,000 policy. Well, now you only had to buy $50,000 of life insurance. The other 50,000 was your money because your investments did really well. So if you're going to buy a policy that has those investments inside of it, you definitely want to look at the types of things that they invest in. And also, you know, what's the probability? How do do these things perform? And this is where we start to get into fees associated with some of these products. Because what I feel like, OG, is that while permanent policies can be 
a fantastic place for the right person to accumulate money. And there's some tax advantages to that. And I think that's going to be outside of the scope of today's discussion. I think some insurance companies muddle that by realizing how complex this is that you and I are talking about this. Yeah, we're, tra- we're trying to do it in 20 minutes. And I mean, we could right. spend hours, I think, talking about each one of these. But I feel like there's some companies then that start taking advantage of people and they start throwing some pretty hefty fees into these products. Well, again, it's contractual at the state level, so it's, it is what it is. But um, because it's complicated, it introduces the opportunity for there to be extra stuff in there. I mean, because again, every company is a for-profit company too, or at least most of them. So they're also not doing it out of the benevolence of their existence. They're doing it so that they make money. They want to make money. Yeah. And the more complicated the thing is, the harder it is to get people to buy it, which means they have to have somebody sell it. The harder it is to sell, the more money you have to pay somebody to sell it because it's hard to do. And they're not paying for it. The salesperson's not paying for it. So... There's only one person left in this transaction. There's the company, the sales guy, and you. Two of them ain't paying the commission. (laughs) Now, again, does that mean it's bad? Is it evil that insurance guys get commissions? I don't think so. There'd be a lot less insurance sold if there wasn't people getting a few bucks on it. Be a lot less purchased, I guess. Well, you think about it. I mean, these Felix Gray glasses, Uh somebody had to sell those, right? I mean, I was on a phone call asking a bunch of questions about how these glasses worked. That person in the middle of that phone call explaining to me how they worked. It's the same person as the mutual fund industry has that we were talking about earlier that the insurance agency has. Yeah. It's distribution fees. Just call it that. It's the distribution yeah. fee. Yeah. That really is what it is. But where the problem happens. And I think if we're talking about like, where do people see the inefficiencies here? If there's an inefficiency, it's, at the compensation level, which feeds into the cost structure associated with the product, there's inefficiencies in the cost structure of the underlying investment or tool inside of those permanent policies. Yeah, possibility that, right. We talk a lot about 401k companies getting kind of called to the carpet about their internal costs. The chickens will come home to roost, so to speak, in the insurance industry. It hasn't yet, but it's starting to because... Like you said, there's some complexity. There's place to stuff things if you wanted to kind of juice it a little bit. That's where you would put it, you know, which doesn't make it right, but that's where it goes, which all leads to this overarching, you know, umbrella statement of, yes, yeah, too expensive. But when you say it's too expensive, what you're talking about maybe is that particular product or that particular company. Because just like, There's the vanguards and the iShares and the fidelities and the dimensionals of this universe on the investment side. There are also those people on the insurance side. There are no fee annuities. We're not talking about annuities, but they exist. There are no fee life insurance policies that aren't term, obviously. They exist. Why don't you hear about them? Do you know why? Because they don't sell themselves. Because there's no salespeople. Because there's, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. so it exists, right? But it's harder. So anyways, I don't know. Using these products, for most people using a term insurance policy is great. Who is a permanent life insurance policy best for? I think there's two separate groups of people. When I was a financial planner, I had a few people and it was generally one every five years where I had somebody who was so risk averse OG as a client that we would talk through all this and they'd say, yeah, I want that whole life one. Why is that? Because I want it guaranteed and we can afford it. Well, because you can afford it, I don't really think you need it. Like this is me as advisor. I don't think you need it because I agree. You can afford it and I don't think you, yeah, but I don't like to take the risk. The cool thing about having lots of money is you can afford to buy the guarantees for freedom from worry. And if that's what you decide to spend your money on, good for you. That is fine by me. So people that are incredibly risk averse want the guarantee of permanence And generally, those people will be pulled toward more of a whole life guaranteed policy. The second type are people that need big tax advantages. And the cool thing about life insurance is that for the right person, life insurance can have these huge tax advantages that even annuities don't give you. That money inside the cash, if you 
pull that money out. And once again, outside of the scope of this, how that all works, but it's not that complicated, but too complicated for today. You pull that out correctly. Guess what? It's like another Roth IRA. Got, got a bunch of money. So you can engineer this thing and you can tell how complicated it is already. It's not easy, which means- back, I was going to say back to our private equity discussion though. Is this the, for the guy that just maxed out his Roth? It's a great point. Fantastic point, OG. This is for you've checked every other box. You were you used that analogy earlier of private equity. You've checked all these other Including boxes. Including the private equity box, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Actually. <laughs> you've checked all these boxes and the private equity box, and you still have money. Very seriously. And you're like, you know what? I got this huge cash flow. What should I do with it? Well, here's what you do. You buy an insurance policy, you do it when you're young, and you stuff the crap out of it with money. And what's funny is, and not funny haha, but funny interesting to me as a money geek, and probably to most of us as money geeks, is that this became such a tax shelter back in the 1980s that they had to create some rules around it. Because what would happen is, is the advisors who understood this said, hey, here's what we're going to do, OG. We're going to take this product. We're going to stuff it. We're going to buy a million-dollar policy. We're going to stuff it with a million dollars of cash. Bam. Yeah, it's your cash. You're buying zero insurance. And guess what? Because of all the things, th this thing is going to now grow tax-free ta forever. It's tax-free forever. Right? Yeah. So the government said, whoa, this is not a life insurance policy. This is now just a tax shelter. And so they have a, some rules called uh, MEC rules, which are modified endowment contracts. If you put money in too fast, the IRS goes, <laughs> sorry, man, this is just a tax shelter. You want to ride that line. If you're able to ride that modified endowment contract line very well, then this could be a good thing after you've done everything else, which is why generally, generally we say, don't use this type of product. But what I can't stand hearing is that the product is bad and nobody should do it. Not true at all, OG. I heard you say something in your description of like where this falls, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, we were talking about checking all the boxes, including the private equity box. And you said, yep, you've done all those things and you can put a ton of cash flow, cash flow into it, not cash because of the tax issues that you mentioned, cash flow. And there's another thing you said, and you're super young. Yeah. So like, what's the universe of those people? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so I think, you know, just to kind of clarify for everybody, we're not suggesting that all of a sudden, like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. If you check all those boxes and you're 31 and you have tons of cash flow and, 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 and maybe, right? One area that you didn't talk about that I think this permanent policy stuff is a little bit, it could be used for on the estate planning side of things. Yeah. And this is That's a the, little bit beyond the scope of our chat sure. today, considering the tax liability for estate plans. If you do it even marginally correctly right now is... 22 million is your tax-free amount. 22, is it 22 and a half now? Anyways, it's some number greater than your net worth and mine combined. Greater than 99.9% .9 of the people <laughs> listening to this. We got one person right now leaning in. Okay. Interestingly, it's right about the net worth of all the U.S. senators average, but I'll digress. <laughs> Weird how that has Strange. trended that way mm. over the years. Uh, we should tax everybody but us. So uh, what do we put this at? But anyways, so if you have a net worth that is projected to be north of $22.5 million, there's another use for it for estate planning purposes. But uh, And very simply, I think, OG, now that people have followed us even remotely, they'll get, which is that uh, estate tax begins at 50%, right? Five zero, close to five zero. Um, it's 55. Yeah. And think about that number. And how big that number is, well, you can either just pay it out of the estate or why wouldn't you take some of your money and put it into a life insurance policy and either it's going to be maybe a smidge higher worst case scenario. But in a lot of scenarios, in many scenarios, you're going to end up with a discount because of the fact that, uh, you know, if you. And again, you have to have over 20 some odd million dollars of net worth. So for that to matter. And I want to go back to the. So stuffing. then you're checking that other box as well, which is you've got 
right. tons of money and you've checked all the other boxes. You've got the so private equity. You've already used it. As, you're, you're checking all the boxes on top of the yeah, boxes. Exactly. Well, I want to go back to the last person that you recommended just to kind of put a point on this. Because I remember, I mean, it's been over a decade since I was an advisor, but I still remember the last person I recommended use this as a tax shelter. Oh, it's it, a tax shelter. Yeah. And it was... It Dude, was, I can't even think of one. It was a couple. They were about 35 years old, two young children. One was a surgeon and one was a radiologist. And between them, they brought in about $800,000 a year. And I highly recommended that they stuff money into a life insurance policy. And they did. And by stuff money, do you mean like $400 a month or do you mean like 11000 a month? 11000 a month. Yeah. Like stuff money in. Yes. Yeah. Just so I think the last in. permanent policy that we placed was for a, a widow who inherited a boatload of cash who wanted to make sure that that amount of money was available for her kids when she died, but also gave her the flexibility to spend everything that she had. Everything else. And so not- she said, how much do I have to set aside today in one lump sum to guarantee that my kids get the same inheritance that I just got? But then also gives me the freedom to have to, to, from having to like kind of retain any of this capital. Yeah. And uh, that was, there it is, 12 years ago, probably. And th- that shows you how, how rare uh, the use is. But it also, hopefully, for all of you, dispels the myth that this is bad for everybody. It is, it is, it is not. Which, which I think to put a point on this OG and to back away from insurance as we close out this, uh, this segment is this. I think that starting with buying life insurance is the wrong place to start. I think the first place to start, whether it's life insurance or disability or whatever it might be, is think about what could go wrong and then think about risk management. Because I feel like the insurance industry wants you to focus on insurance as the answer. And I don't think you want to do that. I think you want to focus on, hey, if I get in a car accident, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my car? What are the bad things that could happen? And how would I financially maneuver that? Which means that I'm going to look at other avenues. I'm going to look at an emergency fund. I'm going to look at, does my spouse make money? I'm going to look at all the other ways that I can bring in money. And then I have a risk management strategy versus buying insurance. The insurance industry, I feel like will always start with buy insurance. We should widen that scope and say, how would I cover this? And then insurance is, you know, in most cases, the likely answer, but not the only answer. That's the biggest point out of all all risk management, all insurance stuff is identify what is the thing that you're trying to catastrophically avoid. Yeah. Categorically avoid? I don't know. Both. Anyways, yeah, categorically, catastrophically avoid. What is the catastrophe that you're trying to avoid? How's there that? You there you go. go. I, put, I put it in the right order. I knew that the, the words were right. I just couldn't exactly you Find know, the brain me work sometimes. Um, <laughs> quantify what that is. What's the probability of it happening? What's the magnitude of the event? If it does happen, and then think through how do you want to solve the problem? And if solving the problem is, I'll just have a bigger cash reserve. Awesome. Good. If the solution is, well, I need to figure out a way to come up with a million dollars immediately if this thing happens. Okay. If you don't have a million, there's only one other solution. (laughs) Start with, what are we trying to protect? Well, that's going to do it for today because of our extended, extended discussion on life insurance. I think we're going to welcome America cap it. So good. And I'm hoping that all of you understand life insurance a heck of a lot more than you did before you listened to this show. Thanks to you, by the way, for spending your hard earned time with us on this show. And last, before we say goodbye is if you want a guide to Monday and Wednesday shows, we do that for free and we're incredibly proud of it. Lots of links, not just to what we're talking about here with insurance and and the links we talked about on the show about Ponzi schemes, but also Brooke fills those with other links. And Brooke, by the way, incredibly good at that OG because uh, Brooke also has worked for a long time as a financial planner. And uh, I'm always surprised by some of the fantastic stuff she comes up with to help you know even more then we can fit in an episode. And to get that, it's free. You can cancel it anytime. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Also, when I head out on tour, and OG's going to make a bunch of those dates with us, uh, hopefully you'll be able to join us to keep up with all the craziness happening as we leave the basement, get in uh, the RV, 
and start heading on our 40, now 41 city tour, by the way, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. And that'll be the first place that we tell you what's going on in the most, frankly, the most reliable place to get that information. Cause sometimes on social media, you see it. Sometimes you don't, that's up to the social media gods, whether you see the right post or not last, but clearly not least, if you want to make better decisions in the future than you have in the past with your money, you want to understand your money better and interface with a team that's on your side. OG and his team are taking clients. So head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will lead you to their calendar and a meeting with them to talk about how they can work with you to make better decisions in the future. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. There's a lot, but what should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from your headline. Be careful who you go into business with and always make sure that they don't have direct control of your money. Make sure there is a third party involved. Second, don't start with how much insurance do I need? Start with what is my risk? This broadening of the topic will help you avoid using insurance when another coverage method might work better. (laughs) The big lesson? I don't care how you pronounce gyro. I'm taking a a, a po' boy 10 times out of 10. Way easier to say. Anyway, happy Euro Day, everyone. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. It's called The Stacker and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and until next time, remember, kids, it's not nearly as fun doing this naked as you might think. I'm glad that we saw the, uh, we're able to pull out uh, little Tommy boy. I was thinking about some old classic movies, comedies. Uh, I had a long drive uh, a week ago. When was the last time you saw Tommy boy? It hasn't been in forever. I love that clip. I, I love everything about yeah. that movie. I love everything about Chris Farley. Yeah. For people that missed Chris Farley, uh, man, did you miss a genius? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Major league. How many quotes from Major League do you find yourself saying on a weekly basis? Well, this is this is this is where it was. We were driving down the highway. It was at night, dark, and there's this semi truck that was in front of us. It was me and another guy, and uh, he wasn't. He, I'm gonna go with. He was playing on his phone, 
because I don't want to imagine that he was just hammered drunk or something. But, you know, kind of hit the line and then like went way off into the like, you know, the median. I think and you so said, I said the same line that I always say. Just a bit outside. <laughs> That's the one. That is the quote. Ball four. Try the corner and miss. Ball eight. <laughs> Ball 12. Vaughn has successfully walked the bases loaded. I don't know how they're laying off pitches that close. <laughs> oh, there's so many from that movie. So many. So lines. your homework this week is to uh, is to find a nice classic, a classic comedy movie. Old School's another one that's always on TNT or something like that. We're all streaking to the KFC, <sighs> to the quad, man. Streaking to the quad, streaking to the quad. But then we're streaking to the KFC, right? No, then he says, can we get KFC? Oh, can we get KFC? You definitely need to watch it again. You're off. I guess. Your, I mean, you got a sense for it, but. Uh, you know where I was on that uh, analogy, on that quote, just a bit outside. Just a bit outside. Yeah. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric who is such a giving person, Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life, and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.